All right. Well, good morning. It is another beautiful day in Austin, Texas. It's not. It's disgusting outside. We are glad, however, to be inside with you talking about some amazing articles from DamnInteresting.com. We have a lot of really great stuff today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link. Okay, that's me. Now, uh, I'm going to introduce this article with a very crap joke that is also at least 10 years out of date. Oh my God, I can't wait. Uh, but I, I, you know, you have to have some kind of introduction. So what does a, what does a hipster geologist study? I don't know what. PBRs, which stands for <laughs> Precariously Balanced Rocks. I That is... That is, I think you need to get up on stage and perform that for open mic night. Probably won't. Uh, <laughs> this is an article from Atlas Obscura entitled Why Scientists Fall <laughs> for Precariously Balanced Rocks uh, by Sabrina Imbler. So what is a precariously balanced rock? These are the things that people do, like you go out to the beach and there's five stones all balanced up on a little pile. and Not, not if, if a person did it, it's not a PBR. Oh, these are like yeah. like the buttes and the canyons and stuff. It's but... a rock balanced precariously. Let me cite an expert here. Oh, okay. This is according to Mark Sterling, who studies uh, PBRs at the University of Otago in New Zealand. It's a rock balanced on top of another rock. That is a highly scientific definition, mm -hmm. and I approve. Natural, but it ha it's natural, right, right? Naturally occurring, not because someone cleverly put it in that position. I, I. I Imagine some people probably do think that PBRs may be, in some cases, evidence of an alien presence. Right, but they're all too heavy for someone. You'd have to use right. like the spaceship to a use a tractor, tractor beam. beam. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, but uh, that we're not going to go with that. We're not going to talk about these uh, paranormal explanations. We're going to talk about the what the natural occurrence of precariously balanced rocks uh, can tell us about the Earth's natural history. Okay. Right? Okay. So. These rocks are sometimes called reverse seismometers. Seismometers. Reverse seismometers because their mere existence, quote, makes it possible to measure earthquakes that didn't happen. If they're still balanced, that means the earth has not moved enough to okay. knock them over. All right. Right? And precariously balanced rocks, let's be clear, they're a subset of a larger category called fragile geologic features. Oh, well, FGF, why didn't you lead with that? <laughs> Obviously, yeah. everybody knows about that. Everyone knows about FGFs, but <laughs> the real heads know to delve deeper, get into the PBRs. So we got to distinguish PBRs from things such as hoodoos. Oh, that, are, okay. Yeah, a mushrooming rock attached to a tall spire pedestal. But it's all one piece. Yeah, that's all one piece, okay. right? Or, or glacial erratics, which are boulders transported by ancient glaciers to new resting places. Although, if it lands on another rock in a precarious way, then it could become a precariously balanced rock. Okay. Right? They're often formed underground first and then gradually exposed through erosion. So you'll have these, these rocks kind of clustered together underground. So, so they're kind of like nicely balanced when they're all nestled underground, but then erosion wears away around them. And it just doesn't and fall. And now they're exposed and having not fallen, they look very impressive mm. now out in the open air. This is a relatively new area of study that was introduced in the 90s by James Brune of the California Institute of Technology. When he introduced the idea, it did upset some people because he was uh, triple dipping. What? He was triple <laughs> what? dipping. Well- Back then, seismologists studied earthquakes, 
paleoseismologists studied prehistoric earthquakes and engineering seismologists studied ground motion. And it's like, don't step on my toes. This is my area of yes, study. Yes, he was uniting the three disciplines oh. in order to study these PBRs. Nobody's a prophet in their own time, mm -hmm. man. But uh, it, it, since then, it's exploded. It's a very, very exciting field. Amir Alam, a University of Utah geologist, is leading an obsessive quest to map every PBR in the state of Utah, where there are many. They take lots of photos. They merge the photos together digitally to create a computer model. And then they knock those rocks over. So they are knocking them over. On the computer. Oh, they're on not the actually. Computer. So oh. pa painstakingly creating a digital model. And then he just turns up the, the shaky dial on his little computer program and sees. Oh, because so then he's trying to figure out like what level of earthquake have we not had? Yes. In order to say it hasn't yes. fallen. In order to establish this geologic history of where and when earthquakes have occurred. That's like knocking over the tower of blocks. Like every kid wants to do that. You build the tower only so you can like kick it over. Well, that brings us to a very important point, which is that you see a PBR. Don't knock it over. Wasn't there a thing like a few years ago, a Boy Scout troop? You, like, did you it nailed they, it. Oh, in I 2012, Boy Scouts. a scandal rocked, quote, to the Utah Boy Scouts. <laughs> Glenn Taylor, a scout leader, was filmed pushing over a hoodoo. So actually not technically a PBR. Oh, but it's worse because he broke it. Yeah. Like it was in place and he like snapped the little mm -hmm. stem. Locals called See, call those goblins apparently, yeah. You don't film yourself committing the crime. That's just common sense. Yeah. And who knows what we may have failed to learn about a earthquake that occurred 50,000 years ago. Because we don't know now. Because we knocked over this hoodoo. So just leave the rocks alone. Here's the thing though. You're assuming, that, like, so we've just established, oh, we think only earthquakes can knock these over. But we've just established rogue Boy Scout troop leaders can knock these things over. So all we're really <laughs> saying is that there was no earthquake and also there were no Boy Scouts 50,000 years ago knocking things over. Right, right. And I guess no, like, playful animals um, who, who would really fully dedicate themselves. I mean, some of these PBRs are rather small, as they, they state in the article. So, you know. <laughs> things that like an animal could bump into and probably knock over. Right. But you know, if it's still standing, yeah, it means nothing messed with it. No earthquake, no kid. No tractor beams. No rogue goat. <laughs> That's right. You know, those desert goats. Yeah. Whatever it is. Walking around. Yeah. I, I do also get, want to give uh, a shout out to the author once again, Sabrina Imbler, for um, using the phrase large adult son when referring to the, <laughs> the Boy Scout leader. <laughs> Uh, describing the recording, saying that the rock thudded to the ground and Taylor high-fived his large adult son. <laughs> One of the, the, great, uh, the great turns of phrase the internet has given us in That's the past right. decade, and I fully support its infiltration into pop science. Proper news media. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, well, I have a fantastic one for you personally, Curtis. You're going to like this. Oh. Uh, it involves a test. Okay. So uh, as... Listeners of the podcast will know our own Curtis Luciani is Italian. So tell me, what <laughs> yes. are the ingredients that uh, make up a proper Italian dish? What ingredients do you oh, think of as classic Italian? <laughs> okay, so I'm Italian a, a ways back. I want to be <laughs> clear about this. I do enjoy Italian cooking. So yeah, ingredients, well, I mean, a, a pasta noodle of some kind. Sure, we got some pasta. Right, a nice sauce, a nice, you know, bolognese or some other type of tomato-based sauce. Mm -hmm. Doesn't necessarily always have to be good. There are cream-based sauces as well. Garlic, <laughs> uh, olive oil. Well, uh, you have just what? proven your own point. You are not a true Italian, <laughs> according yeah. to 
tastecooking.com. It's okay because there's apparently a huge rift in the uh, Italian cooking community between traditional Italian from Italy cooking and American Italian cooking. Sure. And that horrible rift is garlic. Uh, Apparently, it turns out. So garlic in traditional, like ancient Italy, was apparently considered a poor man's food. It was cheap, it grew very easily, and it was so flavorful that it basically overpowered cheaper ingredients. Yeah. Isn't this a weird thing when you look at the history of food and cooking that it's like almost everything good in all cooking was once a despised, like, lower-class thing because it's like, oh, these poor peasants have to, like, use these disgusting weeds to add flavor to their food. That's right, right. Well, and, like, lobster used to be a thing over in Massachusetts. It was like servants would have in their contracts, I'll only eat lobster a maximum of three times a week, and now we're like, oh, it's the most expensive, delightful. Yeah, yeah, whereas, like, I guess the wealthy just want, like, the most flavorless, like... Like uniform cut of meat in like the dowdiest sauce they can find. That's yeah. right. Well, and basically what they said was apparently in Italy, there's this ancient traditional poem that talks about this farmer and he gathers all the in- ingredients for his soup. And one of the ingredients is stinking garlic. And that's sort of held up as like <laughs> this literary basis for why the wealthy in Italy don't approve of garlic. It's considered to have the stink of poverty. Former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi was famously unwilling to allow anyone around him to eat garlic at all. I guess he maybe had a specially sensitive nose and he could tell and like you would get fired if you ate some garlic for lunch and then came back to work. He was not okay with it. Uh, an Italian cookbook author named Marcella Hazan called it the single greatest cause of failure in would-be Italian cooking. So the question, of course, is why do we in America think of garlic as such a staple of Italian cooking? And the reason is because Italian Americans who came and immigrated primarily were poor. You know, you don't leave your country and get on a ship for two months and leave everything unless you really don't have a lot to leave behind. So we sort of self-selected immigrants from Italy and they all brought their garlic with them. And so Americans were like, oh, cool. Garlic is Italian. That's all we know. It kind of makes sense. I mean, when you think of the the cultural associations of garlic, I mean, who hates garlic? The ultimate snooty aristocrat, Dracula. Yeah. Like, <laughs> vampires, like the ultimate upper class elites. That's right. He's yeah. not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they can't, they can't take that stinking Wearing his peasant. suit and his cape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that's so, so in traditional, traditional Italian cooking, like super traditional, what, mm-hmm. I mean, onions and- I think they allow onions. I don't know. They yeah. didn't talk about that. They said mostly, you know, these clean pastas, these tomato bases, they're very fond of the tomato. Part of the deal was that in addition to the original, oh, garlic is for poor people stigma, there was also the racism that happened in early America mm-hmm. against Italians as it sort of came in waves to everyone who emigrated. That's sort of how we roll, apparently. That's the magic. magic. (laughs) The Americans sort of pushed back on garlic as an Italian thing, as they were pushing back on Italians in general, to the point that a 1939 Life magazine feature on Joe DiMaggio, the very popular baseball player, Mm -hmm. uh, it was the first issue to feature an Italian-American on the cover. Everyone's like, look how tolerant we're being, look how inclusive. And they lauded him for not reeking of garlic despite his background. Mm -hmm. They were like, what a good job, Joe DiMaggio. (laughs) For not reeking of garlic. (laughs) Uh, Finally. And it it went both ways because at that same year, there was an Italian newspaper that noted that American children of Italian immigrants had lighter skin, which they attributed to their fancy American diets with plenty of meat and not having to eat so much garlic. Right. So the garlic apparently also darkens your skin as it is makes you smell. Yeah, it, it is this weird thing. 
it's a class thing. It's a race thing. But like there's this weird thing when people are just like very suspicious of these strong flavors, you know? It's That's like right. There's if it's something, too powerful. There's yeah. something a little like unchaste, a little like- <laughs> It's bl- hedonistic. He- yeah, it's hedonistic. It's heathenish. It's like it comes from warm climates, you know? You start eating these strong flavors before you know it. You're having, you know, premarital sex. You're That's doing- right. All kinds of not allowing chaperones on your dates. I mean, what is next? Yeah, exactly. People are moving into your neighborhood, you know. So, best to have, you know, just a plain chicken breast, (laughs) unsalted, heavy cream, unflavored on a little parmesan. If you're feeling wild, maybe. but not not too much. Okay, so maybe I'm not uh, a real Italian, but hopefully I have shown that I am a, a genuine Italian American. Absolutely, that uh, I think is is something to be my, proud of. I love garlic. That's right. I mean, garlic's the best. Well, and it's, honestly, it's genuinely healthy for you. Like yeah. it's truly, it's very good for your digestion. It has a lot of antimicrobial stuff. It's very good for you. It smells a little weird on the breath. Ah, I don't bother. A little me. bit of a little bit. I mean, some people. I feel like it just it just like stays glued to their tongue once they eat. There's like <laughs> yeah, some some like, special quality of their mouth that keeps yeah, the garlic it's, it's in there. Yeah, it's just that keeps the garlic in there. And, you know, these people that they have a struggle that they're living with. And, <laughs> and we all have our cross yeah, to bear. <laughs> good, good luck to all of them. Yeah. All right. Well, next link. Next, next link. link. For all enthusiasts of last year's uh, The Irishman, the Scorsese movie, here I have we have another tale of the nexus between 20th century American organized labor and organized crime. Oh. And this is from New York Magazine's Grub Street blog. Uh, the article is titled, How New York's Bagel Union Fought and Beat a Mafia Takeover. Wait, so a bagel union. Yes. So like just bagel makers. Bagel makers union. Right. Yeah. It, this is a... a Epic story that I cannot do full justice to. So I'll I'll give you some morsels here and hopefully it will encourage people to go check out and read the whole thing. So the first thing to note here is that the bagel, which, you know, is now widely known and beloved as a as a very dense and versatile breakfast food. Right. Can be sweet, can be savory, can put all kinds of things on it. But uh, for a very long time, well into the 20th century, and this touches on some of the themes we've already discussed, you know, it was virtually unknown or disrespected as this bizarre ethnic Jewish food. Right, it's immigrant food. You can't understand that. It's bread in a circle. What? Yeah, it's a weird, dense bread. It's not sweet. A bagel, as the New York Times explained in 1960, is an unsweetened donut with rigor mortis. (laughs) It's a dead donut. So receiving official (laughs) disrespect in the newspaper of record in the year 1960. So, you know, well well into the the 20th century. The thing is that making these bagels, especially in the early 20th century and some of these early New York bagel shops, was a really, really hard profession. There were dozens of bakeries and business throughout Manhattan, and they were, quote, miserable places to work, located in the basements of apartment houses and other large buildings with coal-fired furnaces that could be converted into ovens. Ambient temperatures in those rooms reached 120 degrees, with bakers frequently stripping down to their underwear. So just- Just lots of sweat flavoring. This is basically like like the coal car of a train Mm -hmm. that I'm picturing here with this guy in his skivvies just shoveling bagels (laughs) into this hot oven um, (laughs) while furiously sidestepping infestations of roaches and rats. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A state of New York report read- there appears to be no other industry, not even the making of clothes and sweatshops, which is carried on amid so much dirt and filth. This is like an official like New York State 
safety review. That's right. They're saying we just want you to know <laughs> they receive an F yeah. from the health inspector. And this is the worst we have ever seen. But the conditions were so terrible that they inspired a, a Yiddish curse, uh, which I, I cannot pronounce properly, I'm sure, but it's a Lügen der Erd und Back Bagel. <laughs> which is lay in the ground and bake bagels. In other words, so like, you know, go to hell and make bagels. Be a bagel maker. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> go. So a total nightmare. In the late 20s, though, bagel bakers banded together to form Union Local 338, which uh, was under the umbrella of the Bakery and Confectionery Workers International. But uh, So, but this was the bakeries screwing over the bagel makers. Like the bagel makers were just cooking them and then delivering them. And they were like, I oh, will give you a dollar for your bag of bagels or whatever. Uh, sure. I don't know exactly what the business model was, but like at, at some point, you know, by the 20s, 30s, you know, we're starting to get actual bagel shops who are right. employing and exploiting these immigrant bagel bakers. But the union did a very good job in elevating the compensation of working conditions of the bakers. It worked on a very, very kind of tight, old world lineage based system. So it was like there's a, a number of available spots in the union. And if you want to join the union and be a bagel baker, you need to be the son, maybe, you know, a nephew. So you got to have you your pedigree like, of a bagel baker. Um, and it had an exclusively Jewish identity for a very long time. Even to this day, union publications are offered in English and Yiddish. But Certainly early on, it was all primarily Yiddish. Mm -hmm. By the mid-60s, the bagel business is starting to thrive. Um, and despite the uh, New York Times' swipe at bagels at the beginning <laughs> of the decade, they throughout the decade, they're getting more and more popular. And this is where the mafia steps in, in the form of New York City's famous mob boss, uh, Johnny Dio, with Giovanni, <laughs> yeah, Giovanni Ignazio Dioguardi. Um, in 63, he had just gotten out of jail where he had done a few years stint for tax evasion. And he was looking to get a new source of income. And he said, these bagel makers are making too much money. We got to get yeah. in on that. Well, so this is where the story gets kind of long because there's a circuitous route to the bagel business here. Because first, what he does, he gets mixed up with this kosher hot dog distributor called Consumer Kosher Provisions. <laughs> They're in a feud with American Kosher Provisions, which has its own mob muscle. So, you know, this is two different mob affiliated kosher products distributors. Hot dog turf wars. Going to, yeah. Going to war and, uh, you know, Johnny Dio is using his Teamsters connections to strong arm the grocery stores into setting up a, a lucrative network of distributing what sounds to be arguably substandard kosher products. You know, I don't know. <laughs> The quality apparently was not high. Maybe they were not legitimately kosher. Um, newspapers actually called it the kosher nostra. Kosher oh, nostra. Oh, nice. Very, very cute. Eventually, and again, this is where you should go read the article because well, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff here, but it does end up in the position where there are competing bagel interests in <laughs> New York City. Johnny Dio's mob is trying to run some stuff with some shops that have some uh, non-union bagel bakers. And a uh, union local 338 shuts it down. They hit the streets. They're picketing. They're protesting and uh, preserve their status as the, the, <laughs> the master guild of it. Now, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, subsequently there's other. The, Eventually they'd have to contend yeah, steam, with Einstein the, Brothers. The and... steam train of like nationally distributed capitalism <laughs> and all of the efficiencies and exploitations that come with that, of course, are, are harder to resist. But there was this glorious moment where, where the, the bagel boys... <laughs> 
They had their moment in <laughs> they the had, sun. Well, they had a long, long moment in the sun, and it went as far as kicking the mob out of their business. So part of the reason I did uh, very much enjoy the movie The Irishman is because so much of, you know, the mob stuff I've grown up with is more of like dark glamour of, of unending like violence and like whackings and, yeah. and stuff. And you forget the like the solid base of all this activity is, you know, just like skimming off the top with, you know, strong arming some grocery store to stock some product that you have an interest in. So, you know, this it's a little logistics that. to it. Yeah. I mean, and it shades so easily over to stuff that either was fully legitimate or eventually became legitimate. I mean, like where you draw the line in here between like basic backroom dealings and mob activity becomes very murky. And mm-hmm. so so I, I just I just love this idea that, you know, Johnny Dio, who was, again, a very powerful person, arguably like mixed up and undeniably mixed right, up in some way with many major events of 20th century American history, like, you know, the plot to try to depose Castro after he, you know, had his revolution in Cuba, possibly the JFK assassination, all these things, you know, the election of JFK in the first place, all of this stuff. Uh, but, you know, he's got, got out of jail. And he's like, ah, I got a new plan. I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna sell Bagels. some hot. That's what it- I got a new plan. Jewish food. That's Did right. you know that there's such a thing as Jewish food? It's the hot new thing. It's the hot new thing. We're going to make it happen. (laughs) You know, just so wild. So wild. Anyhow. Next link. Next Next link. link. So this is an interesting one from the BBC about sleep apnea. One of the things they've known about sleep apnea for a long time is that losing weight will help you improve your sleep apnea. But now they have identified the culprit a little more. Mm. Uh, Dr. Richard Schwab of the Perelman School of Medicine in Philadelphia did MRI scans of sleep apnea patients both before and after they lost a whole bunch of weight and determined based on exactly what in their face lost weight and compared it to how well their sleep apnea symptoms improved. And they determined that the number one thing that you can do is to lose weight in your tongue, that a fat tongue is the thing that is really getting to you. Right. And we're not here to fat shame tongues. Like it's, you know, everybody's got their tongue, their bodies, everybody is beautiful. Mm But have you considered, uh, listeners, have you considered that your tongue might be fat? Yeah. Have you considered there might be another part of you that you need to worry about? That's right. You haven't felt enough stress and anxiety yet yeah. today. Yeah. Think about your tongue and how fat it might be. Uh, and of course, they also noted that there's really not a lot that they can do about that. There aren't a lot of, there's certainly no surgeries for tongue liposuction uh, yet. That's right. You absolutely no. could. Do not give up the dream. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just take a few slices off the tongue, make a sandwich, you know? That's right. Nice there you go. melt but, in uh, your mouth. Mm. <laughs> oh now you're making me think of those like placenta sandwiches that people do. It's hideous. Ooh. Yeah. We're just eating body parts left and right. <laughs> but yeah, so they basically said, you know, we don't know what we can do with this information yet, but it <laughs> might be uh, it might be useful in the future. Maybe we'll develop some tongue exercises, Right. you know? Uh, it might be connected to the uh, the frenulum. You know that little piece of skin under your tongue mm-hmm. that connects downward? So if you have a really big frenulum, that's called being tongue-tied. And if you're super tongue-tied, they say, oh, we need to do surgery so you can swallow correctly. But there's a whole bunch of people out there walking around with like sort of tongue ties where it's not really interfering with their life, but it definitely is there. And you can get those snipped and then like do physical therapy on your tongue to strengthen your tongue, which would in theory then maybe mm-hmm. reduce your sleep apnea. I mean, what about tongue twisters? Are they a legitimate form of tongue exercise? Yeah, it could be like like aerobics. You want to, yeah. you know, get in there. I can imagine the YouTube videos. 
And, and you know, you're going to have Instagram accounts, obviously, of people mm-hmm. showing off. They're like, oh, just got back from the gym. <laughs> yeah. So they they studied every part of it the, and they were like, okay, so like how do you, how did they weigh the tongue? Well, I think it was a size thing because they so sort of, you know, they're, they're they scanning measure. the whole head and they're saying, okay, your neck has lost a centimeter in circumference and your airways are a little bit more open, but your tongue has lost a ton of bulk. I mean, they, you know, uh-huh. just size-wise, it's smaller in your mouth. I don't know. Apparently, the, the scans are good enough that they can measure and say, oh, this guy lost three millimeters on his tongue and his right. sleep apnea got way better sleep and this apnea. guy didn't and he's still snoring. I don't know. Wow. It, it seems like a lot of work to go through for information that isn't really going to help anyone. But, uh, you know, that's science. Like, sometimes you got to find something that you don't know what to do with and then 60 mm-hmm. years later, somebody figures out what to do about fat tongues. Yeah, I was going to do a monastic retreat next year with a full vow of silence, but now I'm a little worried that about letting my tongue be so indolent. Oh, apathy for of the tongue. Whole year, yeah. Well, that's yeah. what okay. Well, so that means that being on this podcast should be medically deductible. Oh, I yeah. Mean, I'm, that's I'm right. Waggling this this lump of flesh all over the place here. <laughs> Professionally to, so. To infotain you, you kind dear listeners. <laughs> So that's uh, that's pretty much it. Basically, if you uh, you want to not suffer from sleep apnea, go do some tongue exercises. That's that's where you want to target it. Okay, we'll do. We'll do. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay, this is from the BBC Culture blog. Is this the most powerful word in the English language? Subtitled: The most commonly used word in English might only have three letters, but it packs a punch. It's cat. No, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> It's uh, the, the, which I was, I was always told, like, I was told this once in like a theatrical, like elocution classes, mm-hmm. like you never say the, the word is the. I go back and forth. I go with what fits most rhythmically in what I'm saying. Like if I were going to identify the most common word, mm-hmm. I would say it like that. But if it's like, oh, what's the word? It's the, the. Well, it's- there's, there's also a tradition. I don't <laughs> in the world of like garage band music, like going back, I think to the sixties of, of bands actually titling themselves T H E E like the head coats. Or something like that, which okay. is like, which is an indication to pronounce it like the head coat. <laughs> like, it's like, do not say the head coat. How dare you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, something like that. Okay. It's a, it's kind of a, a fun. It's fun. It's hey, fun. That's true. Um, you gotta have your things. But anyhow, uh, you know, it accounts for five percent of every one hundred words used. Why? So why? Why? Why the? Why? What is? What is so special about that? Well, well yeah, let's think so, about it. Like frequency doesn't necessarily mean important. Like, what's their argument for why it's important? Well, first of all, the is a magic word if we're thinking about linguistic philosophy. Because if I say a blue cow. It you could know, be any blue cow. Yeah, it could be know. any blue cow, or I could be just generally like fantasizing about the possibility of a blue cow. Oh, it doesn't even say it exists, right? You know, like but I if never... I say the blue cow, I've conjured into your head that there is a blue cow, right? All right. We're also indicating that it, it something may be of significance or importance because we're we're singling it out in a particular way. Quote the article here: Consider the difference between he scored a goal. And he scored the goal. That's right. That implies it's the winning goal. It's the winning the, goal. The important yeah. goal of the game. Yeah, yeah. Or was pivotal in some sense. Yeah. So, so we're we're giving whatever is following that article a, a boost in a in a real substantial. I can way. see that. And you know, you do it with celebrities too. You're just like, I met the Patrick Stewart. Like mm-hmm. not just any Patrick Stewart, because it's a common name. You might, you know, if you if you say that you met a Patrick Stewart, you are almost explicitly. Say emphasizing that it was not 
That's right. The Patrick Stewart. That's true. It was I, the Patrick Stewart. That's right. Well, right. I, th- I think A is kind of getting the shaft here, though. Like, I mean, A is singular. It says, I didn't see a, a herd of Patrick Stewart. Sure. It's just, I, saw, I saw one. Yeah, you know? And A is very nice and democratic in a way. And, you know, there you it's, go. It's, but yeah. I, I mean, I think you know, certainly anyone who's endeavored to learn a second language, like article usage is very tricky. I mean, if you grew up speaking English and English has a lot of weird, stupid rules, but then you try to learn another language and you're like, I have to learn that like every like chair I see is a lady. That's right. Well, and there's two forms of <laughs> not is. to be traditionally I mean, binaristic also by there, but like it's like what what, what I have to know like <laughs> Right. Well and I read it I read an article once that was arguing that gendered nouns are actually better because there's more information conveyed and it had this example of a poem. It was using a bunch of metaphor and it was like the, the palm tree is in love with the beach and the sun sets and watches them both. And they were like, so here's the English translation. Sure, it's a nice metaphor, whatever. But you have to realize that in the original language, the tree is feminine and the beach is masculine and the sun is masculine, but then the clouds are feminine. And they're like, there's this whole double entendre interplay going on Mm. with the genders of these words that you just lose. And I'm like, yeah, but did we need that? Yeah, counter argument. (laughs) Sounds like the original was more heteronormative. Therefore, I'm more woke. Therefore, I win. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely. Eat it. Uh, It's not laziness. It's wokeness. So, so Bertrand Russell actually, that you know, the British philosopher, wrote a paper in 1905 called "On Denoting," where it sounds like he basically like he was very frustrated with the fact that in English we keep using "the" for things that don't exist. So, getting back to like the idea. Oh, is something imaginary. Like kind of conjures something into reality. He thought it was intolerable that phrases like the man and the moon were used as though they actually existed. Quote, he wanted to revise the surface grammar of English as it was misleading and not a good guide to the logic of the language, uh, (laughs) explains some other guy Well, so, but what are you going to say? A man in the moon? I mean, I guess, but at the same time, it's like that implies there's multiple men in the moon. Like that to me seems even more misleading. Yeah, I mean, the thing you're conjuring into reality is a is a specific fantastical concept, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> there's only one. Fake I mean, there's zero the men in the moon, <laughs> but as an icon, as a uh, fantastical construct, there's the man in the moon. Yeah, see, I feel like if I said, I see a unicorn, that almost implies like, of course, there's lots of unicorns out there. If I saw, I saw the unicorn, it's like, oh, okay, well, we know the unicorn isn't really real. It's just this one little imaginary thing you've got mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. I, Bertrand Russell's wrong. Yeah. I'm, I'm taking a stand right now. I want his <laughs> uh, legacy erased. I feel like he was wrong on this. He's wrong on everything. Yeah, suck, suck it, Bert. You're dead. <laughs> We're alive. <laughs> that's that's all I have to say to you. Language is a living document. Ultimate he, comeback. He doesn't get to prescribe things because it's what we all agree is true. That's true. <laughs> but you know, he was just he was just ma- taking his shot. He was shooting his shot. That's right. With on denoting. Tried to leave a mark. Anyhow, uh, next time you're talking. Writing, otherwise using language, uh, spare a celebratory thought for the the humble the, a word of such magical possibilities and uh, and overweening power, and use it responsibly. That's right. Don't go talking about things that aren't specific and real. Yeah, don't go thawing every single Johnny-come-lately concept or idea (laughs) or object that comes your way. Save that the. It's special. A word this powerful should not be used so frequently. I think that's good. I'm I'm in favor of it. All right. All right. Next link. Next, Next link. So the Consumer Electronics Show just sort of wrapped up. CES is sort of known for showing a lot of 
you know, new stuff that isn't necessarily going to become mm-hmm. widespread, but is Gizmos like people and showing off there. As well as just being like, oh, yeah, more TVs. Yeah, we, <laughs> we got bigger and better TVs. Guess, guess what, guys? We made more TVs. That's right. So there was, uh, there's a lot of things generating hype, but one of the big ones was from Toyota. This is from Andrew J. Hawkins of TheVerge.com. Toyota unveiled at CES. They have plans for a 175-acre prototype city of the future. Yes. And their plan for this is to build a city. They bought the land. They're going to build a city. It's going to house about 2,000 real live people, mostly Toyota employees and their families. And the point of this city is going to be basically a testing ground for all of their technology as it comes about. Every car is going to be self-driving. Every house is going to be a smart house. There's going to be, you know, automated doctor AI things diagnosing your broken arm. And of course, the trade-off of getting all this cool new technology is that you are signing away your right to uh, be surveilled at every opportunity and everything you do. And all your data is going to be for them to test. Because I Mm -hmm. guess they had this issue where, you know, they create something and like, we want to test it. And everybody's like, "Mm, I'm... I'm not on board with the self-driving car just yet. And if I am, I'm certainly not going to give you all the stats about my driving because I don't want you to know that I speed everywhere. So they, they're sort of strong arming is maybe a little bit too harsh of a word, but it feels like they're pressuring employees to go mm-hmm. live in this little utopia yeah. that they've created. And, and if you don't, maybe you lose your job or maybe you don't get that promotion you wanted. Yeah, yeah. this is a terrifying idea <laughs> to me because, because it's so insidious. I mean, so all of these huge, huge corporations are like kind of at the point where, where you know, big data analytics is a big thing now. And it's like everyone's like, we, we want to make this a real science. Like our business, whatever it is, is going to become a real science. We are going to understand our consumer behavior in a scientific way. In a granular like, way. Like we can collect this data and yeah. find out the tiniest patterns. And and it's just so easy to imagine Facebook or something like that, just opening up a thing to, you know, applicants from across the country where it's like, hey, we know that the future's scary. Secure lifetime employment is no longer a thing. We know it's hard to get health insurance. Here's the deal. Uh, sign up with us. Come live in Facebookville, which is essentially a, a city laboratory. It's we not play. a cult. Yeah. Not a cult. Not a cult. It's just a, it's just a place, a nice normal community where you will live and we will study every aspect of your behavior until we figure out under these closed scientific laboratory conditions how to manipulate human emotions, <laughs> impulses, and actions to our profitable benefit. We'll pay you a very nice stipend. That's right. You, know, you just sort of become one of our assets. We just own you and, you know, we collect our data from you and you get a place to live, I guess, is the, the, the trade off. Right. Crazy. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, of course, so you have these aside from the concerns of like, oh, you are totally selling your soul to the company store in a completely new and terrifying way. But it also I think it's uh, easily argued that the data they're going to get is not necessarily going to translate to the real world anyway. Sure. Like they've had these problems where all these uh, uh, social sciences, especially the studies are done on white educated something something graduate students. I forget what it stands for, but it's weird is the acronym they Uh came up for. (laughs) And they said basically, yeah, you're doing all these studies, but you're doing them on what is actually a very homogenous section of the population that happens to be a graduate student in the social sciences. And you're not going out and getting people in urban environments. You're not getting people of color for the most part. And so your your studies are all invalid. 
because all it really tells you is how this particular group of people mm -hmm. behaves. Mm -hmm. You're all you're really going to get is how does a Toyota employee interact with their self-driving car? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not, you know, your average person who is not loyal and, and rationally devoted to Toyota. I mean, do, what is the main outcome that they're looking for? I mean, like, so I understand in a limited sense, it's like, well, to finally kind of solve the self-driving car problem that, you know, they need like a, a large controlled community where- Right, well, yeah, they want city the streets. Yeah, and if, you know, in theory, I guess if somebody gets run over in the company town, it's not as bad as if a stranger got run over. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. But then also, but, but they said, you know, aside from the- they need the large space for the self-driving cars, but they, they're anticipating basically every new technology being tried out in this city first. You're going to have hydrogen fuel cells powering the city. You're going to have health sensors in the home that can tell you like, oh, you know what? Digestively, you're not doing so great. Your toilet told you. Anything you can imagine that's ever been like, oh, this is the cutting edge of technology. They're going to pack it into this one place and see what happens. <laughs> Get their data, I guess. Yeah, well... It, hopefully, um, you know, my suspicions are overwrought. And what we're actually doing here is just beta testing a brilliant future for whatever small percentage of humans will survive the coming <laughs> Can still conflagrations afford, right? of uh, the 21st century. Well, and, you know, I, I, I imagine that they would let you move there if you wanted. They're going to break ground in 2021. And I think if you said, hey, I, I want to live there. Just let me join the compound. I'll be a good little worker. We'll attend whatever brainwashing classes twice a week that we need to do. Yeah. It's, it's, you know what? I, I, I like that idea because, first of all, they probably do want to get some folks from around the world. Yeah. I imagine they'd take yeah. you. And, uh, you know, second of all, it's like, I, it's time for me to get excited about technology again. You know, in my 20s, I was, I was very hype on all this technology. It's time to shed your genetic. Then, then it seemed like, you know, Things took a turn and we're like, oh, actually, this is not going to solve all our problems. You know, maybe I want to get back into that mindset. You're due for a rejuvenation. I just need some smart engineers to come up with some innovations and some solutions and I'll stop feeling bad. That's right. It's going to make you happy stop when the bad. AI of your house says to you, chemically, you're unhappy. You go, oh, now I understand why. <laughs> and, now, and now it's easy to fix. Yeah. Do your do your mindfulness breathing. That's oh, right. Thank you, house. Just okay. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> Eat half an orange. You need vitamin C. <laughs> no, no, not yet. Okay, now. Now do it. <laughs> We're going to just absolutely min-max the human body and yeah. our houses yeah. and our family life. It's going to be fantastic. Just, I, I don't want to go fully on to being like, you know, just a plugged in human battery into a matrix type system. But like if, if I've got a nice little box I can move around in and the computer just tells me what to do, but I can actually do it myself. Right, you still feel like you have the control. I'll feel like that's a good balance. I'm, I'm nicely empowered. Well, good. I think we've uh, we, we've brokered a good conversation. I feel like we can draw up the contracts and uh, get you get you settled. <laughs> yeah. If they're gonna if they're gonna spy on us anyway, you might as well might yeah. as well have a, a Rav Four named Charlie, who's your best friend as well as your car. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Remember, if you like our podcast and you want to support us, you can go to Patreon.com/slash/DamnInterestingWeek. We are freely taking donations at any time. And on a serious note, we do need the support of our listeners to continue. We have always been and always will be ad-free. We don't believe in allowing corporations to dictate what kind of content you hear. We don't believe in pretending to have enthusiasm for things we've never heard of and wouldn't use. We think that <laughs> whole thing is just sort of a bad vibe and not great and probably belongs in the Toyota city of the future and not here in America. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. 
But at the same time, we really do need your support. We have funding for three more episodes. We really hope you'll keep us going. We love doing it. We hope you're enjoying listening to it. And it's very, very easy. A dollar a month will get you not only the continued existence of this podcast, but also some really cool goodies that we've put up there. We've got some behind the scenes things. And uh, we hope that you will continue to help us keep providing good content for you. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.